our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 to 44. For you who are visiting with us this morning, there are a number of you. We have been in the book of 1 Samuel for some months now. I think that the context of this chapter will make itself clear enough that I can simply dive right in. I'd like to submit for your thinking that the centerpiece of this lengthy chapter is Abigail's speech when she meets David in verses 23 to 31. I'd further like to submit for your thinking that it's Abigail's final petition in verses 28 to 31 that are the high point of her speech. And I'd finally like to submit for your thinking that it is in fact the logic of verse 28 specifically that forms the main point that in fact explains the purpose of 1 Samuel chapter 25. Look there at verse 28. This is what Abigail says to David, the anointed but uncrowned king. Please, she begs, forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And I think everything hangs on the first word of the second sentence of verse 28, the word for. Please, David, forgive the trespass of your servant for the Lord will certainly make you, my Lord a sure house. Abigail asks David to forgive the trespass of your servant. What's she talking about? Well, you heard the chapter read, but it is perhaps a new story to you. Even if it's not, let's review it. There was a very rich man who was shearing his 3,000 sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, meaning fool. The man was harsh and badly behaved, verse 3 tells us. And David heard about Nabal shearing his sheep. And so he sent 10 men to Nabal with greetings of peace. And then in verse 7 of our chapter, we learn that it had been after David had been in the wilderness of Paran, far to the south in Judah, following on Samuel's death, that he had returned. Evidently, he'd gone on his own for a time, perhaps to mourn. He had returned then to join his men and spend time in the region of Carmel, where Nabal's shepherds kept their flocks. Now, if you've been with us, Carmel might ring a bell for you because that was the site where Saul had earlier set up a monument for himself in chapter 15, if you recall that incident. 
Verse 7 continues, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Or in other words, David and his men had assisted Nabal's shepherds so that remarkably no sheep at all were lost during this time. And in fact, we learn later from one of Nabal's men who went to Abigail that David and his men were, this is verse 16 of the chapter, they were a wall to us, he says both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. That means that they, David and his men, had provided security against dangers, of which the wilderness, of course, had many. So, David and his men had acted with kindness and generosity toward Nabal's shepherds and sheep. And David heard then that Nabal was shearing, which means that Nabal was now enjoying the benefits of that period of security for his flocks. While David and his men were in need, so the ten young men come to Nabal in David's name, requesting some kindness and generosity. And Nabal responds like the rich fool he was, in verses 10 and 11. Who is David, he says. Who is this son of Jesse? And it's funny, but there was someone else who had referred to David disparagingly as the son of Jesse. It was Saul, back in chapters 20 and then again in chapter 22. And then Nabal says more. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. You see what he's accusing David of there. It's not true. Nabal's slandering David. And again, it's funny. Saul had accused David of something similar. Then watch Nabal's attitude here. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Only this guy's full of it. He knew very well who David was because everyone had now recognized that David, the son of Jesse, was Israel's future king. Even Abigail understood that, as we'll see. So we don't know why, but what's clear is that Nabal despised David and refused him any kindness. So David's men come back and tell David how Nabal responded. And it would be fair to say that David lost it. He was outraged at the insult. So what does he do? Verse 13. Every man strap on his sword, he commands. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, three times sword, right? We don't need to be told what David's planning. But you can look ahead to verse 21, and it's right there. Verse 21 is in the context of Abigail coming to meet David, but the narrator there reviews what David had said. And what we're left with is no doubt as to his intentions. Here's David, verse 21. Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil 
for good. And it's funny because isn't that what Saul said about himself last week in chapter 24, verse 17? Look there if you've got the Bible in front of you. Chapter 24, verse 17, Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. David now says that of Nabal. But now here we are in chapter 25, verse 22, and what's David saying? God do so to the enemies of David, and there's decent evidence to suggest that the wording should be just to David. God do so to David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And let's just say one male is a rather sterilized rendition of what David actually said there, okay? You have to go all the way back to the old King James to find an English version willing to translate the actual Hebrew that the ESV renders as one male. Because David uses a vulgar epithet there for male and one that you only find elsewhere in context of cursing. Why? Because David's furious. And I want you to see, firstly, that David had some good reasons to be angry. Don't lose sight of the fact that by the end of the chapter, Nabal's dead. Because the Lord struck him in verse 38. This is clearly God's judgment against Nabal. Nabal's a fool. That's a word that carries a lot more significance biblically than we tend to give it in our English usage, colloquially. If you've been with us, you know I've quoted from Psalm 14, verse 1, more than once in this First Samuel series. But here we are again, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool, the Hebrew is Nabal, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. Or, consider Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6, for the fool, again, the Hebrew is Nabal, the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, to deprive the thirsty of drink. I mean, Nabal's all of that. He refused to offer any assistance to David and his men, and he did it with insulting and sarcastic language towards the future king who had been generous and kind to guard his shepherds. He was unreasonable, arrogant, churlish, and clearly he's all about his wealth. He doesn't know the Lord, even though he's part of the people of Israel. But now watch this. The issue in this chapter isn't so much that David was angry, about what happened in response to Nabal's foolishness. The issue is what David does with that anger. Because in this chapter, David does what most people do when they're severely provoked in a completely 
unwarranted manner. He responded in kind. In essence, he said, if you want to behave like a fool, it'll be the last time you do so. Put on your swords, right? And in the, in the movie version of this chapter that's playing on the big screens them there behind me, this is when you know that Nabal has a problem. And he does with the Lord. But in the context of 1 Samuel, it's really David who has the problem here, isn't it? Because David's response to Nabal's insult is to seek revenge. He'd take the law into his own hands in vindictive retaliation for Nabal's insults by killing him. And if chapter 24 from last week taught us anything, it was that that's exactly what David can't, what David must not do. Do you remember last week in chapter 24, if you were here? In chapter 24, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, and he didn't. And what did he say then in verse 12 of chapter 24? Do you remember this? Or look there if you have it. Look, chapter 24, verse 12. David says to Saul, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, I'm convinced Saul is still David's enemy and that David still sees Saul that way. 100% Saul is still David's enemy. But David rightly saw that the righteous response was to stay his hand against Saul. Why? Because the Lord will be the one to avenge David against Saul. David knows it. Because the Lord will be the one to judge Saul. That's why David chose not to take matters into his own hand. And that display of righteousness so caught Saul off guard. That do you remember what he said? Verse 17 of chapter 24, Saul speaking to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. David had it right. He understood the principle. He, in fact, quoted a parable to make the point in verse 13 of last week's chapter. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. In other words... I'm not wicked. And so significant was that moment for Saul that for the first time publicly he states what he saw then to be true. Verse 20 of chapter 24. Now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, David, why? Because David had stayed his hand and had not avenged himself. He acted as Yahweh's king must act. And that's the connection that Abigail uses in verse 28 of our chapter. Please, David, stop. Forgive the trespass of your servant. Why? 
for the Lord will certainly make you, my Lord, a sure house. Saul in chapter 24 knows David will be king. Why? Why does Saul know that suddenly? Because for all of Saul's incredible failings that we've looked at for weeks now, he's still able to recognize what real righteousness looks like. And above all, the king whom the Lord has chosen for his purposes must be righteous, do you see? David had just demonstrated that in spades, chapter 24. And brothers and sisters, we're very close to the heart of the Christian life here, are we not? This isn't just for David. This isn't just some special requirement for the king. This is all of us. Consider the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, in that magnificent chapter that begins with Paul saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do you remember where that chapter, Romans 12, ends up? As Paul reflects on the nature of love as the hallmark of the presence of the spirit of the Christian life, you know it. Verse 19, beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And in these immortal words, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. And there we were last week, as David's faith is on clear display in his righteousness so that even Saul saw clearly that David would be king. And then here we are this week. Only one chapter later, and it's all wrong. David suddenly doing precisely what he must not do as the future covenant king. Do you see? Three times this is made explicit in 1 Samuel 25, though in the ESV that you're reading, it's not as easy to see it as in other translations. So I'm going to quote now from the NIV so that you hear it. Just look at the verses that I mentioned and then listen as I read them from the NIV and you'll see what I'm seeing. Because it's there in verse 26 in Abigail's speech when she says, the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. What does Paul say? Never avenge yourselves. It's there in verse 31 when she says again, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself the NIV says. And it's there in verse 33, when David says to Abigail, may you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Do you hear it? 
What's going on in 1 Samuel 25? Why is Abigail intercepting David? Answer, the Lord's preventing his chosen king from doing what he must not do. Because David, please hear this, David, for all that he had learned in the wilderness, as Roger rightly explained last week, and for all that he had shown to be true of himself in righteously sparing Paul's life and leaving vengeance to the Lord in chapter 24 as he should have done. For all of that, David in chapter 25 is hell-bent on killing Nabal and all the men who belong to him. Now what's going on? I'll tell you what I think is going on. I think David's living the life of faith, and the life of faith is not a linear progression, brothers and sisters. It is a roller coaster. And David is tempted in a new situation, surprisingly, in a confrontation with Nabal. And just because David nailed it last week and trusted the Lord and did righteously, does not mean that when Nabal comes along and pushes David's buttons in just the right ways, that he's going to sail through that temptation in the same way as he did the last one. Brothers and sisters, you can never rely on yesterday's victory over sin in your life to think that that means that the next time around you'll, you'll be just fine. Just relax a little. No. I pointed out already just a few of the ways there are more in which the narrator presents Nabal as in parallel to Saul here. David, you see, the point is David is now failing the same test that he passed in chapter 24. Which is why the Lord swings into action in this chapter. Do you see that? Because brothers and sisters, when our faith is failing, what has to happen? The Lord has to hold us fast. The Lord has to show up in some way. He might show up by his spirit, prompting us, convicting us, warning us somehow. Or we might go through with our sin and then the Lord has to rescue us by giving us soft hearts that will repent and respond in righteousness. The point is the Lord knows his purposes for David and David's failing this time around. And so thanks be to God, he sends Abigail. Has the Lord ever done that in your life? Sent you someone who speaks to you of your sin and stops you from falling off a cliff? It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God on display here. Because David needs to learn to trust the Lord in this situation, just as he had done in the last one. Why? Because there's another one coming. He's going to have to pass this test one more time next week in chapter 26, you see. There's a lot resting on this. David cannot go through with this. So the Lord sends Abigail. 
That's not my interpretation of what's happening. That's the Bible's interpretation of what's happening here. Look at verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Praise the Lord. And parenthetically, I think it's worth noting that even before the Lord sends Abigail, he was working to prepare her too, right? So you read there in, the, in verse 14, starting in verse 14, how one of the young men told Abigail all that had happened with David. That means it's one of Nabal's young men doing that. I wonder about that young man of Nabal. Without him, there's no Abigail coming to David. The Lord's always at work to bring about his purposes, right? And if you're listening really closely, you might have picked up on how the servant calls Nabal a worthless man in verse 17. You've heard that language before in 1 Samuel. It goes all the way back to Hophni and Phinehas. Worthless men who did not know the Lord, the text says. This young man sees clearly what it means to say Nabal is a fool. Abigail's not a fool. She works quickly. Bread, wine, sheep, grain, raisins, figs. Verse 18. Then she's off. She doesn't tell Nabal anything about it. And she meets David. And verse 23 says she fell before David on her face and bows to the ground and she starts her speech. She knows what she's doing. And it's stunning because it's not what we expect. Read it carefully and you see that Abigail did not act because of danger to herself. Abigail didn't even act to save Nabal. Abigail acted because she saw David endangering himself. That's stunning. Did you pick up on that? Abigail's action is born of personal faith in the promises to David. She speaks here with insight and authority of a prophetess concerning David's future. She totally got David's reaction to Nabal. She was the man's wife, after all. She can sympathize with David's feelings. There's no defense of Nabal here. Look at verse 25. Let not my lord, meaning David, let not... My Lord, regard this worthless fellow, it's her husband, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. So she moves right into what she understands herself to be doing in coming to David. Verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, i.e. avenging yourself. Now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She knows where his life is headed. Abigail knows what's happening. Her interception of David is the Lord himself keeping David from a disaster. So then here we are back where we started, brothers and sisters, because what is it that Abigail says that stops David in his tracks? What is it that turns David back from the brink? I think it's verse 28. Abigail asks David to forgive the trespass. And the key is to see on what basis she can do that. It's not immediately intuitive, I don't think. It's right there in the second sentence of verse 28. 
For, she says, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Abigail bases her appeal for forgiveness on the most astonishing prediction of David's coming kingdom. Her prophetic insight here is matched in 1 Samuel only by Hannah in chapter 2, if you recall that. Abigail anticipates here the great promise that God will make to David through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're a ways from there. This is the first time the sure house for David is mentioned in the Bible. In fact, this is the first clear reference to the dynasty of David, and it's to look far ahead of where we are at this point. But this is Advent, after all. David's sure house is the climactic theme of the 2 Samuel 7 promise. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, listen to it. The Lord speaking through Nathan, and your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, says the Lord. Somehow Abigail knows this. The Lord's revealed it to her. And she put forward the certainty of David's future kingdom and his secure dynasty as the basis on which David must now extend forgiveness to her as she assumes the guilt of Nabal and David forgives his enemies. Brothers and sisters, what is the connection? It's the whole ballgame. How can she say, because the Lord will make you a sure house, therefore please forgive the trespass of your servant? Why is it wrong for David to take vengeance himself? Answer, it's what Paul said in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. David is to reign as Yahweh's king. And Yahweh's king must not take vengeance into his own hands. Yahweh's king must trust Yahweh. Which doesn't mean the true covenantal king is just passive and does nothing. Abigail says David is fighting the battles of the Lord, right? But the point is that the one fighting the Lord's battles is waiting on the Lord in the process. David's confrontation with Nabal wasn't a battle of the Lord. It was David seeking personal revenge, which is why perhaps the most surprising and I think most beautiful moment in the story is when David listens to Abigail. I mean, I'm not excusing David's bloodthirsty response here. I have no doubt that without Abigail intercepting him, he'd have gone through with this horrific intention. But I think we see a remarkable aspect of David's behavior here in these days before he became Israel's king. Confronted with the reminder of who he is, David relented. David forgave his enemy. David listened to Abigail's voice and that says something about the condition of David's heart, brothers and sisters. It says something when you respond to your brother or sister who comes and warns you of your sin. 
In fact, David responds in praise. David praises both her and God for sending her to him. Verse 32, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried, and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And then where would we be, brothers and sisters? Today we begin Advent. We're explicitly waiting for the coming of the King, are we not? What kind of King are we waiting for? Jesus Christ would be born from the house of David. The angel Gabriel said at the announcement of the birth of Christ, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. I submit to you that in the Lord's redemptive historical purposes, it matters a great deal what sort of throne the throne of David would be. Do you see? In Jesus Christ, we see the character of the true covenantal king revealed in all its fullness. Is David the Christ? No, clearly not. Can David point us to the qualities of the true covenantal king? Even as he responds at the last moment to the interception of the Lord in his life? Yes, yes, he can. And we'll see it again and again and again. Abigail understood that in some way, everything's riding on how David navigates this time of waiting for the throne. And maybe you'll think that this is the preacher overreading the chapter, and it might be, but might it be that in the big picture, 1 Samuel 25 is about the evil one attempting to turn David away from this covenantal ideal before he even can assume the throne. In an attempt to derail the kingdom purposes of God, could it be? Might it be that the evil one wants David to be a king who takes justice into his own hands? Might it be? that the evil one had been unable to accomplish in David's relationship with Saul what he now seeks to accomplish in David's unexpected surprise encounter with Nabal. Samuel had died, verse 1 tells us. Might it be that this was a time in David's life when he was particularly susceptible to defeat? And might it be that Satan is also at work to lead us astray from the Lord's will and his purposes for our lives. I think so. Which is why I think Paul's reminder in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 is timely for us and sort of could be a summary of this entire chapter. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, 
let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise the Lord for sending Abigail. He was faithful to David, and he will be faithful to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.